We are continuing to work through our series entitled The Church. In part one of our series, we looked at how the church was born in humble beginnings and in great adversity, and yet was destined by God for greatness that would go on to change the world with the power of the gospel. We were also reminded how the church, translated from the Greek word ekklesia, is not talking about the building or the structure we're in, rather the church is talking about the gathering of believers. And so we gathered together as those who believe in Jesus Christ, we are the church. And then last week, we asked the question, how are you using your freedom in Christ? Are you using your freedom to only serve yourself and your own interests, or are you using your freedom to serve others with the love of Jesus? For the purpose of the church is not to serve me, but the, the purpose of the church is rather to serve others humbly and in love. For the secret to greatness in God's kingdom is not how many servants you have, but what kind of a servant you are. And so now today we want to focus in on the church's absolute imperative, and that is to pass along the faith to the next generation. Would you bow with me? Father in heaven, in all generations, from the very beginning, you have given each generation that comes before one important task that is above all others, and that is to pass along the torch of faith to those who would follow. From Adam and Eve right to today, it is always our job to tell our children so that they can tell their children about you, about your great love, about your great power, and what you have done on our behalf. And so I pray, Lord, that this age-old truth would be one that again would ring out loud and clear this morning. And that we would be impressed with how important it is, but more than that, our part that each one of us has to play in transferring our faith from one generation to the next. And so I pray, Lord, please speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. An old man traveled a lone highway, came at the evening cold and gray to a chasm vast and deep and wide. And the traveler paused at the chasm's side, then carefully crossed in the twilight dim. The sullen stream held no fear for him. But he paused once safe on the other side to build a bridge to stem the tide. Old man, said a fellow pilgrim near, you're wasting your strength by building here. Your journey's done at the end of day. You never again will come this way. The builder lifted his old gray head Dear friend, he said, on the road I've come, there follows after me today another whose feet must pass this way. The chasm that's been as naught to me, to that fair-haired youth, may a pitfall be. He too must cross in the twilight dim. Dear friend, I'm building this bridge for him. In Psalm 73, pardon me, 78, verse 3, we read this. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from our children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. To build a bridge. Have you ever seen a a bridge that built itself before? Has anyone seen a bridge that built itself? Has anyone crossed a bridge that built itself. Would you trust such a bridge? No, you wouldn't. 
All bridges have to be built. Someone has to see the need and take the time to build the bridge. And to do so is the absolute imperative of the church. It's been said that the church is always one generation away from extinction. The church is always one generation from extinction. The very first time I heard someone say that, it scared me. It scared me because it all seems so precarious, so fickle, as though the flame of faith could so easily be snuffed out. Like links in a chain, it doesn't matter if 100 generations in a row were faithful to build the bridge for the generation that follows. All it takes is one generation to fail to build the bridge and poof, it's all over. The chain is broken. And once the chain is broken... Not only has the sinful life and its consequences become more deeply rooted in that generation, but then once that generation has grown and the one before it has gone, who is left to teach them the right way and to show them the love of Christ and to tell them about God and his power and his plan for their life? And the painful truth is that while it takes many generations to establish a long legacy of faithful passing along of the faith, it only takes one generation to break that chain. And the consequences of a broken chain can last for multiple, multiple generations. The most clear example of this taking place, we can look in the Old Testament to the account of Judges. If you take your Bibles, turn there with me this morning to Judges chapter 2. As you're turning there, the backdrop to this story is, of course, Israel that has finally taken possession of the promised land. They've gone into Canaan, and under the courageous leadership of Joshua, they have militarily taken the land. They have driven out the Canaanites before them or subjugated them underneath them. Now, most of you will remember at the conclusion of all of these victories, Joshua's final farewell address to the nation that took place shortly before his death where he famously said these words that many of you, and I know we do, we have these words on our living room wall. This is what he said. Now choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods that your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now dwelling. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And all the people responded, We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. And they all lived happily ever after. Right? Nothing went wrong for Israel after that because they said it. They meant it. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Well, as Paul Harvey used to say, now the rest of the story. Judges 2 verse 7. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him, and who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and Asherah. 
In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around them, whom they were no longer able to resist. Warren Wearsby wrote this. It has been said that the first generation fights the battles. The second generation claims the spoils and enjoys them. And the third generation sells out to the enemy. Now that might be a little bit of an oversimplification, and thankfully that's not always the case. But this is exactly what happened with Israel. Joshua and Caleb, their generation, they won the battles. The next generation, they saw what God had done and they lived for him. But the third generation, they sold out to the enemy. Now there's two things I want to highlight for you from this passage. First, look again in the middle of verse 10, this line. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And so here we see two types of knowledge that are lacking. There is not, pardon me, there is knowing things about God and then there is knowing God personally. The third generation after Joshua had neither types of knowledge. They didn't know God personally, nor did they know what God had done. And this speaks to those two types of knowledge. They don't have either. So how is this possible? How could this generation, only one generation, remove from those who were eyewitnesses to the mighty acts of God, like the walls of Jericho tumbling down, crossing the Jordan River at flood stage, and all of the other mighty acts of God. They had seen them with their own eyes. One generation removed doesn't even know about that. How is this possible? Well, the answer is self-evident. They simply weren't taught. Now today we see all the time that people can grow up in the church and they can gain some intellectual knowledge about God and what he has done. But they fail in the second category of knowledge. They never come to know God personally through a relationship with Jesus Christ. I had some friends, some close friends growing up who fall into this category. They learned the Bible stories. They knew about David and Goliath. They knew about Noah and the ark and all the other classic stories of the Old Testament. But they never came to know God personally. And so their hearts were never with him and they grew apart from him. And while it's always sad to see, I understand how this can happen. I understand that without personally connecting with God through a faith, a personal faith in a heart-to-heart relationship with Jesus Christ, without that, everything else is just head knowledge, and it lacks the power to transform us from within. We can learn a lot of, of head things, but those things by themselves, as good as, as they might be, as true as they are, they lack the power to change us from within. Only the living presence of Jesus Christ through a personal relationship can transform us from within. Just knowing things is not enough. And now some people will use this as an argument against heavy biblical teaching. But that's the total wrong approach. Because while you will find some people who know things about God but don't know God personally, I have yet to meet the person who knows God personally but doesn't know anything about God. Right? You can't come to know God personally unless someone first tells you about him and things about him. And so we see that the right response 
is to do our very best to make sure that not only are we teaching the next generation about God and his power and the things he has done, but we must also be intentional and aware that our lives demonstrate what a heart-to-heart relationship with God through Jesus Christ looks like. It's not just about what we know, it's that we know God and that he alone has the power to transform us from the inside out. And so it begs the question, are you and I, both as individuals and as the collective church gathered here today, are we modeling to the next generation a transformed life and the power of Jesus Christ living within us? There's a story told of a little league coach who suddenly stopped the game right in the middle of things. And he walked over to one of his players who had just made an out. And he looked down at the young player and he asked him, Do you understand what teamwork is? Little boy nods his head, "Uh uh-huh. Do you understand that what matters most is whether we win together and we lose together? The little boy nods his head, yes, coach. So, the coach continued, when a strike is called or you're out at first base, you don't argue or curse or attack the umpire, do you? No, coach, we don't do that. Then the coach said, now go to the stands and tell that to your mother. (laughs) Hopefully none of you are that parent, but we've all seen that parent, haven't we? We've experienced that sort of a parent, whether in the baseball or in hockey or wherever it is, where this happens. A little extreme, maybe. But it highlights the point that our kids are watching us and they are listening to us. And it's not just what we teach them, it's how we live that they're looking at. And in fact, how we live is probably the greater emphasis than what we say. In the third generation after Joshua, here we see that the generation that came before somehow failed in neither teaching them about God nor showing him properly what it looked like to know him. And what happens is this third generation dives headfirst into idolatry with Baal and Asherah. And if you do any study and research into what the worship of Baal and Asherah looked like, it was complete with child sacrifice, offering children into the fire, and ritual sexual orgies. This is what they dove into. And now it's easy to look at that third generation and blame them. Say it's all on them, they made their choice, and yes, that's true. But if we look closely, I believe that as much, if not more, of the blame rests at the feet of the second generation that came before them. No, the second generation did not reject God. They kept, you know, obeying him as long as they lived. But somehow, through dereliction of responsibility, or laziness, or carelessness, or I don't know what, they failed to build the bridge, and they broke the chain. And what happened to ancient Israel is still happening today. Consider for a moment the nations of Europe. Europe was once considered the bastion of Christianity, the birthplace of the Reformation and the great missionary movements that took the gospel around the world. And Europe today is majority secular and atheistic. And I've told you many times how the missions trip that a team of us from our church took to France a number of years ago To be there in France made such an impression on me. Because everywhere we went were these beautiful 
buildings, structures with tall steeples and stained glass. But notice I call them buildings because you can no longer call them churches. Why? Because the church no longer gathers there. Believers in Jesus Christ are not meeting in these beautiful cathedrals anymore. They're just tourist attractions and and beautiful structures on the landscape. But the purpose for which those structures were built, the worship of God, is no longer taking place. In fact, in one city of over 500,000 people that we visited, we were told that there were only three churches in the entire city, over 500,000 people, there were only three churches of born-again followers of Jesus Christ in the entire region. And that we were visiting the biggest church, which boasted 50 members, if everyone showed up. We're talking an area of half a million souls, and the biggest church in the area has 50 people. The bridge was not built. The chain was broken. And today, the consequence is multiple generations of millions of people living in Europe are being born, living, and dying without knowing the transforming love and power of Jesus Christ. Now, if we return to Judges chapter, chapter 2 and verse 14, there's one more thing I'd like to highlight for you. Verse 14 says this, In his anger against Israel... The Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, and highlight this, whom they were no longer able to resist. I find this very, very interesting. I mean, did Israel just forget how to fight? Did they no longer have soldiers, men who had been seasoned in battle? I don't think so. I think that when Israel rejected God, God handed them over to their enemies. Now, why would God do that? Was it to punish them? Yes, it says he was angry. But in his anger, it wasn't anger unto judgment. It was anger unto correction. You know, when Declan does something that I really don't like and he smashes something or hits theater, I'm a little angry. But I don't use that anger unto judgment. I channel that anger as a responsible parent unto correction. And yes, if I discipline him, it's to correct him so he doesn't do it again. That's what God is doing with Israel. He sees what they've done. They've turned from him. They're going after Baal and Asherah. And God's angry about this, but he's not judging them. He wants to correct them, bring them back to himself. And so he hands them over to their enemies. And I find this phrase curious, whom they are no longer able to resist. Why? Because when God had handed them over, the nation had lost its heart. They had lost their identity. And so no matter what they did or how hard they fought, they could no longer win or even resist. And I can't help but again see parallels to what happened to ancient Israel, and then we see it happening today in Europe. You know, every single week, there is another headline of an extremist Muslim terrorist attack taking place. And every week, we hear the authorities say, we're doubling security, we're tripling security, we're, we're, we're going to just be so secure that, that we just got cameras, and every return, we see men with machine guns. But is that stopping it? No, it's not. They keep happening. And finally, the authorities are kind of shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, we don't really know how to stop it, so I guess we've just got to get used to it. And I've heard politicians say that, in effect, 
Let's get used to it because we can't stop it. I even saw an article last week that I couldn't believe it. I thought it was satire at first, but it was actually a real legitimate article that was entitled, How to Do Your Makeup After an Acid Attack. Like, acid attacks is just something you've got to get used to because actually they're happening. In fact, they're happening on such a routine basis that women are having acid thrown in their faces. And now we know they already have the biggest police forces in the world, security cameras everywhere. So what's the answer? Is the answer more security? Is it bigger armies? Is it more men with guns? Well, the answer is repentance. The answer is turning back to the God who you have rejected. Europe has rejected the Lord as a collective. Could it be that the Lord has handed them over and they are no longer able to resist because they've lost their heart? Europe needs to look back to God. It's not about military. It's not about security. It's about a right relationship with God. God is our protector. And I see the same things happening here in Canada. It's not about how secure we are uh, militarily. It's about how secure we are in our relationship with God. I truly believe that. Yes, the church is always one generation away from extinction. And as scary as that is, God has designed it that way for a reason. And that reason is that each generation cannot rest on and be content with what the generation did before them. Each generation must take the mantle of responsibility for themselves. Each generation must grow up and take seriously their God-given mission to turn around and build the bridge of faith for those who follow after us. Now, we can't greatly influence what's going on in Europe or even in Canada on a national scale. But you know where we do have an incredible amount of influence. In fact, do you know the single place where you have more influence than anyone else alive on planet Earth today? Your own home. You have more influence in your own home than anyone else. And this applies both to people with children still at home and to those with children who are already grown. Now, you may have heard of a young pastor named Timothy. And you certainly will have heard of his mentor, the Apostle Paul. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, in chapter 1 and verses 5 to 6, I want you to listen to what Paul writes. He says this, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands." So here we see three generations of bridge builders. Grandma Lois, she lives out her faith. She passes that along to her daughter Eunice. Then Eunice also does the same, and she passes it along to her little son, Timmy. And Timmy grows up to be a great man of faith in the early church. And he, too, passes along the faith to many more, building more bridges for those to come. Three generations of faithfulness. This is a small but powerful example that demonstrates the truth of Psalm 78, verses 3 to 4. Let's read it again. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from our children. 
we will tell the next generation. Verse 6, so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children. And underline this last part, then they would put their trust in God. That's the end result of all of this. We want them to not just know things about God, we want them to put their trust in God, to know him personally for themselves. Mark it down. The next generation needs us. And they need us right now. They don't need us tomorrow or next week. They need us today. You know, we're not living in a morally or spiritually neutral world right now. You know, the world's not just going to say, you know, we're going to hit the pause button on influencing your children until you're ready to get around to it. No, that's not how this world works. The world is actively influencing the next generation to their ideology, to their worldview, to their way of looking at things that is apart from God and in many ways against God. This world is not morally neutral. Today, kids grow up in a high-pressure world. Anyone who thinks this world is religiously or morally neutral is kidding themselves. We are in a spiritual battleground. All kinds of forces are vying for the hearts and souls of the young. And the primary role falls on the parents' shoulders to influence our children, to tell them about God, and to model what it looks like to live with him and for him. But the role is not the parents alone. That's where we as the church, collectively, as the body of Christ, we come together and we share that burden with each other. We don't just say, parent, it's all up to you to build that bridge. We come alongside and say, we're going to help in building that bridge. We're going to build that bridge together. And this morning, the Sunday school classes were a part of that, laying down planks on that bridge. The singing class was part of that, teaching kids to worship God and to make music to him. And right now, as you are listening to this sermon, downstairs the children's church program is going on. And you know what? The children's church program is not just babysitting so that we can sit here relatively uninterrupted to listen to a sermon so that the important job of the church can happen. No, the important job of the church is also happening downstairs. That is every bit as important as the sermon, if not more so. Because the next generation, if we fail to pass along the faith to them, but we sit here and, and, and learn and know and all this kind of stuff, and we stay right with God, but we don't pass it along, then the indictment that was on the second generation of Israel will also be the indictment upon our generation. We can know all we want to know about God, but if we don't actively work at building bridges for those who follow us, in the end, I believe we are failing in one of the most key missions that God has entrusted to us. What's happening downstairs is vital to the ministry in the heart of this church. Today I want to invite you. Don't put off building bridges. Don't think I'm going to get around to it next week. I'm going to start influencing my kids next month. I'm going to start talking down the road somewhere. No, start today. And it's not a one-off thing. It has to be consistent, daily, regular. It has to be a part of our life. Bridges don't build themselves. So I invite you today, put down your remote control, put down your iPhone, your golf clubs, your book, your vehicle, whatever it is that is distracting you from this important mission, and instead pick up a hammer and start building a bridge. Find someone else who's already building a bridge. Join in with them. 
Invest in your kids, invest in your grandkids, invest in the children of this church, because in doing so, you are building a bridge of faith. And one day, we will see the effect. Maybe not in this life, but in the one to come, where we will see if the next generation follows us to heaven, because that is the ultimate goal. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this is truly a high calling to build bridges for the the next generation, for our children, for those who will follow after us. And Lord, as we do so, we recognize that in many ways we fail and we fall short. And so, Lord, we confess and we repent of those ways that we would fall short, where we'd say we're too busy or we're distracted or we're just lazy. And I pray, Lord, that we would repent of that and instead engage in that which truly matters, to teach the next generation of you, of your great power, of your great love, and more than just head knowledge, that we would show what it looks like to know you personally as Father, as Lord, as as Savior, who has come within us and is actively transforming us from the inside out. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength to do this. Fill in with much grace where we fall short. And we pray, Lord, that every child, every young person of the next generation, even those yet to be born, who you've entrusted to us, would come to know you and your love personally. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.